Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Middle of chapter 26, which is Hashem's name, numerical value of Hashem's name. And we learned that joy is an essential ingredient in a, a, in a Jew's service of Hashem. Without joy, it's truly impossible to truly serve Hashem and to triumph over our challenges. And Kalman asked last week, he hit it on the nail, he asked, mm-hmm. first question he asked, how do you deal with problems, human problems? What if a person is suffering? How can you tell a person, be joyous? It's one thing to be joyous, if you have something to be joyous about. Things are going very smoothly, and things are going very well, and everything is hunky-dory, and everyone is healthy, and everything is wonderful at home, and, and you have nachas from yourself, you have nachas from your spouse, you have nachas from your children, you have nachas from your business. Okay? Then, you can, you can be joyous. It's easy to be joyous. But tell a person who's suffering, who's in pain. He has problems with his, problems with Shalom Bayez, with problems at home, or problems with the children, or problems with health, or problems with Parnassar. Tell them to be joyous. And he said that being joyous is an essential ingredient. You can't serve Hashem without being joyous. It's impossible to achieve the goal to serve Hashem properly without the joy and the alacrity and the energy and the enthusiasm. You have to feel good. Without the joie de vivre, you have to feel good about life. You have to feel good about... You have to be in a good mood, you have to be uplifted, you have to be inspired, you have to feel confident. How can you tell a person who's suffering, who's in pain, to feel joyous? That's what Alter Rebbe is going to address in this part of the chapter. In middle of page 346, sound advice. Sound advice has been offered by our sages on cleansing one's heart of all sadness and any trace of worry about mundane matters. Even a sadness or worry caused by the lack of such essentials as children, health, or livelihood. The advice is contained in the well-known saying of our sages, quote, Just as one recites a blessing for his good fortune, blessed are you, God, who is good and does good, so must he also recite a blessing for misfortune, end quote. The Gemara explains that this does not mean that he recite the same blessing, for the blessing in case of misfortune, God forbid, is, Blessed are you, God, the true judge. End quote. Rather, the implication is that one should accept misfortune with joy, like the joy in a visible and obvious good. The Mishnah says that just like we make a blessing when something good happens in our lives, we thank Hashem. We also make a blessing when tragedy happens, when, God forbid, the ultimate tragedy, when there's a death. We make a bracha, we make a blessing. We say, Baruch, blessed are you. We don't say, blessed are you, and for this wonderful news. You don't cry, and you don't dance at a, at a funeral. It's a, it's a tragedy, and you, it's reflected in the blessing. You say, you are the true judge. We accept God's judgment. We don't understand it, but we accept it. But we say, blessed are you. Baruch you're blessed. The same expression we say when we say, Baruch when you're blessing God for, for tremendously positive news. 
And the Talmud adds, you have to receive this with joy. The question is, how is it possible? How is it possible to receive pain and suffering and to accept it with joy? There is a, uh, was a rabbi in Eastern Europe, a famous rabbi. His name was Rabbi Beresh Meisels. He was a rabbi in Krakow and Warsaw. Before he was a rabbi, he was a dean at a yeshiva, and he was also a very wealthy business person. His business was that they used to chop wood, and they used to ferry the wood down the river. So I think in Germany they would ferry the wood down the river, and it was a very risky, risky proposition. If everything went well, that's how they brought the wood downstream until it arrived at the port and were able to sell the wood. What if the river was very swollen because the melted snow? Well, many times the wood, the logs, didn't make it down the river. They just capsized and they, they were drowned and that was it. You know, they cut the wood. There was a huge amount of wood and they were ferrying it down the river, floating it down the river, and a catastrophe happened. All of the wood disappeared, sank, gone. So overnight, he turned from someone who grew up in a wealthy household, never had a care in his life. All of a sudden, he's bankrupt. He's in debt. How are they going to break the news to him? They were worried. How's he going to take it? This is a, hard, a terrible, terrible catastrophe. There was no insurance those days. It was a terrible catastrophe. So they asked his closest student in the yeshiva to break the news to him. So the student goes over to Rebbe. He says, Rebbe, I'm learning this passage in the Talmud, in the tractate brachas. The Talmud says that one has to bless Hashem for the bad news, just like you have to bless Hashem for the good news. And the ta- that's the mission. And the Talmud adds, you have to accept it with joy. He says, Rebbe, I don't understand. It's impossible. How can a human being be thankful and grateful and thank Hashem and bless Hashem for the negative, just like you're blessing Hashem for the positive? And, to, and with joy? And he starts explaining it. It was very deep and very sharp. He starts explaining it. And he gets all worked up. And he says, so much so, that when something happens, you should even start dancing. He says, Rebbe, start dancing. <laughs> and he tells him what happened. He promptly fainted. <laughs> and with great difficulty, they revived him. When he realized that his whole life just turned around. <laughs> And what a tragedy just befallen him. From being wealthy on top of the world, he was suddenly impoverished and in debt. And when he finally revived him, he says, you know, apparently this (laughs) passage is not as simple as I thought. (laughs) It's much more difficult than I thought. You know, it's one thing to... It's one thing to uh, intellectually, abstractly... But if God forbid when tragedy strikes and misfortune strikes and it hits home, then it's a very difficult thing. So how can a person receive the negativity, the tragedy, with joy? Okay, and he explains. For it too is for the good, except that it is not apparent and visible to mortal eyes, for it stems from the, quote, hidden spiritual world, end quote, which is higher than the revealed spiritual world, whence derives an apparent and revealed good. The latter emanates from the letters Vav and He of the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter divine name composed of the letters Yud-Ke-Vav-Ke, while the former derives from the letters Yud-Ke. 
This is also the meaning of the verse, quote, Happy is the man whom you, God, spelled Yud-K, chasten, end quote. Since the verse speaks of man's suffering, only the letters Yud and K are mentioned. Man sees misfortune only because he cannot perceive that which derives from a higher, hidden level of godliness. In truth, however, the, quote, misfortunes, end quote, are actually blessings in disguise. On the contrary, they represent an even higher level of good than the revealed good, since they originate in a higher world. I have to ask a question. Uh, in Tillam, where he says, um, your rod and your rat, your rod and your... Right. Comfort me. This is it. This is the, the re- this is the exact same thing. Right. Well, you know, when tragedy happens, you feel like you uh, just fell through the the looking glass. What's the expression? It's like it's like a different universe. Like there's, it's like everyone else, and then it's like a new reality. And you know, someone who, thank God, wasn't touched by tragedy. It's like it's like you enter into a different universe. And um, you know, but a Jew believes that this is how we reconcile. If God is good, God is essentially good. Everything that happens in life is good. So how do you reconcile it with pain, suffering, tragedies? And one of the ways we view it, and this is what faith is. Faith is, we don't understand it. With our mind, we don't understand it. But we have faith and we know that there's a different perspective. You have two different perspectives. You can have a, a, to a child, take a child to the doctor. To the doctor's child, the doctor is a monster. The doctor is pricking the child with needles. All the candy in the world is not going to change the fact that this child is horrified of the doctor. In his mind, the doctor is just a terrifying person. He's sticking him with needles, sharp needles. But when the child grows up, and the child sees the bigger picture... Not only is he not terrified, he breaks him, makes him, goes himself to the doctor. Makes his own appointment, shows up, and... Waits. And waits. <laughs> and waits. And waits. <laughs> because when you see the bigger picture, you realize it's, it's, it's not what it seemed to be. It's not what it... What, you know, the, many people misunderstood. The God of the old Bible, the God of the Bible, of the Torah, is a very wrathful God. Torah is telling us, if this will happen, this terrible thing will befall you, and this terrible thing, God is always warning the Jewish people. And um, it's true to our history. I mean, the Jews uh, suffered uh, more than any other people. So, it's like a parent warning a child. You know, don't walk barefoot. Because you know what's going to happen if you walk around barefoot? So the parent can't tell the child, you know what's going to happen when you walk around barefoot? You're going to get a foreign object. It's going to enter into your bloodstream. And you're going to turn gangrene. And we're going to have to amputate your leg. You're going to poison your whole body and you, you're going to be, you may die 
and we won't have a choice, we're going to have to amputate their leg. Do you think a child can understand that gangrene, poisoning the body, all the child gets is that if I disobey my parents, they're going to cut off my legs. You know, so it's a very childish understanding if you take it literally that if something is going to happen, I'm going to be punished. It's not about the punishment. It's a consequence. If you behave a certain way, if you act in a way that's alien to your true nature, that's hostile to your true nature, that violently opposes your true nature, Torah warns a Jew, you're going to start begin to worship idols, and you begin to worship mammon, and you're going to forget, what, you forget what, what you're all about and who you're all about. Then as a consequence, you're going to endanger and threaten your whole being. And therefore, as a, you may need an amputation to save, save the organism, to save your life. So it's actually a very gentle and merciful thing that the doctors are doing. When they amputate the person, imagine an aborigine that walks in for the first time in his life, walks into a hospital, and he sees ten men and women in white coats tying down this poor helpless person, tying him to a bed, taking out sharp knives and cutting him open. He would be yelling, bloody murderers bunch of bandits. Look what they're doing, this innocent person. They're tying him down, they're cutting him open. They ganged up against this innocent person. From his point of view, that's exactly what's happening. He can't even begin to fathom that not only aren't these ten people murderers, these ten people are the most kind, the kindest, most compassionate people they're doing, they're saving this person's life, they're operating on him and saving his life. But he can't see the bigger picture. He doesn't get the bigger picture. Like the little child doesn't get the bigger picture. So from his perspective, it looks, it appears to be pain, suffering, it appears to be something negative. While the truth is, from a higher point of view, if you see the bigger picture, you realize that it's all, it's all for the good. It's like there was a great Hasidic Rebbe who said, when I come to heaven after 120 years, I'm going to storm heaven and earth, and I'm going to make sure to put an end to all the pogroms and all the terrible suffering and tragedy that that Jewish people were suffering from in Eastern Europe. After he passed away, his disciple, his, uh, who took over, okay, there was a son, so there were terrible tragedies continued. And he met his father in his dream. He says, Father, what happened? I thought you promised us that you're going to come to heaven. You're not going to let them rest. You're going to storm heaven and earth. What's going on? He says, son, what should I tell you? From our perspective up here, we see a whole different picture. <laughs> I don't see what you're seeing. <laughs> it's a whole different ballgame up here. I, I see, I have a whole different perspective. It's not what you're seeing. So I, I can't, I don't have that urgency. I don't feel the pain of suffering. Because if we were to see the bigger picture, we were to realize that, that something else is going on. God is good. And nothing negative comes from God. And therefore, if something negative happens, we have faith that this is good, and God is good, and everything He does is good. For our good. It's for our benefit. And if there was any other way that we can accomplish this positive thing without this pain, without even our praying, 
because God cares about us, loves us more than we love ourselves. God feels our pain. It's like the parent who has to amputate the child. It hurts the parent more than it hurts the child. Having to amputate your own child. But it's the merciful thing to do. You're saving the child's life when the child's life is in danger. So if there, was any, if there would be any other way to save this child without going through this painful procedure, even without our praying, before we even pray, God would never allow this to happen. So this is faith. We don't understand it. We know that our minds and our awareness is extremely limited. How much is 365 times 474? I have no idea. You have no idea. If we can't fi- so if we can't figure out something so simple, you think we're going to figure out life? There are people in walking this church that could solve Okay, okay. But, but if most of us, if we can't figure out something so simple, you think we're going to figure out life? Life is so infinitely complex. So we have faith that Hashem is good, and He is running this world. And nothing happens in this world without Hashem. And Hashem loves us more than we love ourselves. And He feels us, and He cares about us, and He's with us in the pain, and He feels our pain. So if there would be any other way of achieving the positive purpose without the pain, even without our prayer, God would never allow this to happen. So obviously, if He allows this to happen, it's for our good. And many times you don't see it until, with hindsight, you look back and you realize how this opened up a whole new path in your life. It's opened up a whole new door in your life. It's like that uh, during the Holocaust, there was a famous rabbi in Europe, Whenever the students in the yeshiva would ask him a question and he didn't know the answer, he would sleep on it. He says, and the next day, he would come and, and, and give the answer. So this was during the Holocaust, in the ghetto. And the students asked, Rebbe, what's going on? How is this possible? There's no sin in the world that deserves such such a punishment. What's going on? And the Rebbe said, let me sleep in it. And the next morning, he gathers his students. He says, let me give you a parable. An aborigine... He's never seen a farmer in his life. Walks, bumps into the farmer, and he sees the strangest sight. To his mind, the strangest sight. He sees the farmer take a kernel of wheat, a perfect kernel of wheat, and he takes it, and he buries it. What does this farmer have against this kernel of wheat? What did this kernel of wheat do to him? Why is he burying it? Comes back a while later, he sees something is sprouting. Fine. Very nice. Comes back a while later, he watches the same farmer, the same vicious farmer, takes a knife, a scythe, and cuts, cuts the wheat. What does he have against this poor thing of wheat? Let it grow. No, he has to cut. But that's not enough. It gets worse. Then he takes the wheat and starts thrashing it, starts stamping it. And then, in anger, he takes, after he stomps in it and crushes it, he takes, what does he do with it? He throws it, throws it into the air. He's winnowing it. 
And then he collects, he sees there's still some seeds left, he collects the seeds. And he takes it, and he starts grinding it, crushing it, with viciousness, without mercy. And then what does he do with the powder that comes as a result, the flour? He sees he still can't get rid of it, he drowns it. He pours water on it, and he tries to drown it. And then, in anger, he starts banging away at it. In this mixture of water and flour, he's banging and knocking. And finally, finally, and this tops it all, and this he couldn't take anymore. He takes this thing and throws it into the fire. That's it. He had enough already. What a monster. What a vicious, cruel, cruel person. And he left. He didn't stick around (laughs) to see this delicious, fresh bread that came out of the oven that's, that's satisfying and edible and, and they, got the, they got the moral of the story that what we see with our limited perspective we are seeing the burying and the cutting and the threshing the cutting and the threshing and the winnowing and the grinding and the kneading and the throwing into the fire but it's only as a result of all of this, the end result is, where is this all leading to? Everything that happens in life is leading to something positive. Everything has a positive purpose. God is good. God is essentially good. And everything that God does is good. For our good. It's all leading towards a positive purpose. And if you don't see it immediately, because it's difficult to see it when you're in the grinding process, when you're being ground up, it's very difficult. But that's faith. Faith is, we believe, and we know that God is good. And even if we don't understand it, we say, Baruch, blessed are you. We accept your justice. We don't understand. And it's a tragedy. And it's very painful. But we accept it. Because we know that if God is doing it, it's for our good, for our, our benefit. And the end result is good. Now, when a person, what he's saying here is that it's not only that it's a means to an end, that something good will come out of it. As the famous story in the Talmud, the Talmud says that Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva would always say, whatever happened to him, invariably, he would always say, he says, whatever God does, Rahman the merciful one, it's for the good. And there was a story, he was traveling, Rabbi Kiva was the leader of the Jewish community, and he once traveled around, he would go around fundraising for the community. So he went to this village, and they were very hostile, they were very mean, not charitable, and not hospitable. Not a single Jew invited the famous, illustrious Rabbi Kiva into his home to stay over the night, sleep over. It, was, it turned dark, there was no hotel, it's a little town, and everyone shut their doors, no one was inviting him into town. He had no choice. He had to go to the forest to sleep in the woods. All he had with him, he had his donkey to ride on. He had his rooster to wake him up in the morning. And he had a candle to, to, to study Torah with at night. So he lights a candle. He was going to study Torah. He sits down on the rock, lights a candle. A wind comes and blows out the candle. If that's not bad enough, a cat came and swallowed up his rooster, killed the rooster. And then a lion came and killed the donkeys. <laughs> so, tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. The worst day of his life. Not only is he alone, t- 
tired, hungry, no one lets him into the house. Everything that he had, one by one, was taken away from him. What was his reaction? He said, and internally, he said in his heart, you know, this happened for Hashem. Nothing in the world happens without God. God is doing all of this. And whatever God does is for the good. And it didn't take a long time for him to realize the good. Because that night, a band of, a band of bandits came into town and took the whole town into captivity. Had he been hosted, one of them he would have ended up in captivity. Had they seen his cattle, had they heard the rooster, had they heard the donkey, they would have caught him. Because they couldn't see him, they couldn't hear him. His life was spared. So he immediately saw how it all worked out for his benefit. So although he suffered, he was inconvenienced. And he suffered. For those brief moments, he was in pain. He was in pain. This was a tragedy. It was a horrible experience. But he had faith that whatever God does is for the good. For my good. And eventually, and he saw it very quickly, that it was for his good. Sometimes you see it immediately. Sometimes you don't see it for a very long time. And sometimes you don't see it until the ultimate until the future, as he's going to say. But ultimately, everything that Hashem does is for the good. But he's saying it's not only that it's a means to an end, it's the ends like justify the means. The end is good, and the ends justify the means, even though the means are painful. But he's saying here that there's actually a closeness. Ironically, there's a closeness a person who is touched by tragedy, a person who is touched by pain and suffering, if he opens himself up to it, actually feels a closeness, feels the gentle touch of God. Because while we're suffering, and we believe and have faith that the suffering is for our good, and It says those who God loves and cares about, those are the ones that He he rebukes. Those are the ones that He looks out for. If a person is not living up to his potential, if a person is asleep in life, spiritually asleep, if a person is lost morally, ethically, and spiritually, because God cares about him, it's like a parent. A parent disciplines his own child. You don't discipline a stranger. I mean, what do I care about the stranger? But my own child misbehaves. You care and you, you discipline them because you care about them. So it's precisely because God cares so much about us that if we're asleep spiritually and we're not living up to our potential and we're perhaps doing things that are actually self-destructive and counterproductive, Hashem wakes us up. It's actually an act of love. And there's a gentleness because Hashem is with us during that experience and Hashem wants to make sure that we can handle it. He doesn't give us something we can't handle. He doesn't give a person uh, an experience they can't handle. And you can feel a closeness to Hashem. May we never know of this experience. But people who have this experience can tell you that you feel at that moment the closeness to Hashem that you can't explain perhaps even more so than when things are going well. It's a hidden closeness. It's a very deep, very intimate type of closeness. 
because there's a gentleness. Hashem is making sure there's a caring about you that you feel. Hashem wants to make sure you can handle it. And, and, and there's a certain very gentle intimacy that, that you can only experience in those moments of tragedy, of pain and suffering. So he says that this, this, the level of pain and suffering comes from the deeper level of Hashem, comes from the hidden level of Hashem, from the more intimate part of Hashem. And because it's so intimate, that's why it cannot be revealed. That's why we call it the hidden world. Just like within a person. The parts that we could reveal, the parts that we can com- could communicate, we can communicate and talk about things that are very superficial, that really don't matter. Try talking about something that really matters, that we care very deeply about, that we feel very intimate. It's very hard to communicate, even with ourselves. It's hard to put into words. You're at a loss of words. Something that's very deep, you can't put into words. It's very vague. It's a very deep feeling, but it's very vague and fuzzy and unclear. And the same is with Hashem. The parts of our life that are clear and clear-cut and are obviously good and self-evidently good, in a certain sense, they come from a very superficial place. The parts within us that are very dark and concealed and vague and fuzzy and it's unclear and creates all sorts of confusion, the truth is that that comes from a much, much deeper place, a much more intimate place within Hashem. So what it means is actually that Hashem, that we're elevated, that Hashem is speaking to us in a much more sophisticated language. He's not speaking to us on a childish level. Everything is very clear. When Hashem starts talking to us on a very unclear, vague, fuzzy, nebulous language, Hashem is really sharing with us and talking to us from a very intimate place, from His intimate place. So the, the uh, pain and suffering comes from the higher level of Hashem, the higher level, the two first letters of Hashem's name, which is, which is the hidden part of Hashem. And there's an intimacy and there's a closeness that a person who's open to it can feel to Hashem. Ironically, you would think that you would become very distant from Hashem when tragedy happens to you. On the contrary, those who are open, whose hearts are open, you feel an intimacy and a closeness to Hashem that you can't, you can't describe. But paradoxically, ironically, in that negative experience, you feel that Hashem is with you. You feel so close to Hashem. You feel even closer to Hashem than when, when good things happen to you. So even the pain and suffering itself, it's not just that it's a means to an end, there's a bigger picture, and everything Hashem does is for the good, even though we don't realize it, we don't see it, and that's our faith. But here he's saying something deeper, that even in the pain and suffering itself, there's an intimacy, there's a closeness to Hashem that you can't describe. But you feel very, very intimate with Hashem. Hashem is elevating you, Hashem is speaking to you in a very sophisticated language, a very high language. And he feels that you that he could speak to you in that language. That he can communicate with you on, on a deeper level. From, the, from the, the hidden world. From a more intimate part of Hashem. And that's why, that's why a Jew could accept and thank Hashem, say, Baruch, blessed are you, Hashem. And as the Gemara says, receive it with joy. It's not the joy and the suffering, God forbid. God forbid. But it's the joy of the closeness of Hashem. And that's why he says, I want to continue for this reason. For this reason, our sages of blessed memory stated that the verse, quote, 
Those who love him shall be as the sun when it comes out in its might, end quote, refers to the reward of those who rejoice in their afflictions. So the question is, what's the connection? If so, one receives his pain and suffering with joy. So the verse says, what's going to be his reward? His reward is going to be, oh, Mashiach will come. It says, Mashiach will come, Hashem will the sun will emerge out of its cover, out of the ozone layer, out of its, out of its sheath. Maybe that's what's going on now. We have the sun is coming out of its ozone layer. And, um, um, and the tzaddikim, those who love him, will bask in that ray, will bask in the rays of the sun. Versus those who are wicked, those who are evil, will actually be burnt by those rays, will, will suffer from, from those rays. So, the connection, what's the connection? What's the connection from, what's the commensurate? Hashem rewards a person measure for measure. It has to be commensurate. So because a person rejoiced in this pain and suffering and received it with faith and, received, and blessed Hashem and received it with joy, therefore Hashem will reward him that in the future when Mashiach will come, he will bask in the rays of the sun. Hashem is compared to the sun when godliness will emerge and godliness will surface and godliness will be revealed. This, this person will bask in the rays and he'll be rewarded, justly rewarded. What's the connection? So he explains the connection. God always rewards man, quote, measure for measure, end quote. What is the connection then between rejoicing in affliction and, quote, the sun, end quote? Also, why are those who rejoice in affliction described as, quote, those who love God, end quote? The Alter Rebbe now explains that since misfortune is really nothing but a disguise for the higher form of good that derives from the hidden world, the option as to whether it will bring man either joy or misery depends on his priorities. If he deems his physical life all-important, he will indeed be miserable, while if nearness to God is his primary concern, he will rejoice, since nearness to God is found in greater measure in the hidden world whence derives the good that is hidden in misfortune. Those who rejoice in suffering are therefore called, quote, lovers of God, end quote, and are rewarded by being granted the vision of the sun emerging in its might. Since in this world they disregarded externals and ignored the veil of misfortune, hiding the good within, choosing instead to concern themselves with the deeper aspect of good and godliness lying behind the veil, God rewards them in the world to come measure for measure by casting off the veils that surround him and revealing himself in his full glory to those who love him. For the four-letter divine name signifying God in his essence is compared to a son, and the name Elohim signifying God as he is clothed and concealed in the created universe is compared to a veil shielding the created beings from the intensity of its rays. As it is written, a sun and a shield, respectively, are Hashem, Elohim. In the world to come, the sun will emerge from its shield, i.e. the four-letter name will no longer be veiled by Elohim, and it will shine forth in its might as a reward for those who love him. This, in summary, is the explanation contained in the following paragraphs. For one's joy in affliction stems from the fact that being near to God is dearer to him than anything of the life of this world. As it is written, for your loving kindness is better than life. So externally, materially, 
a person is suffering. You're lacking in something material. Whether financial, whatever challenge you may be facing. But since you realize that this suffering comes from Hashem, directly from Hashem, and it actually comes from a deeper place within Hashem. From Hashem's, it's a more intimate revelation. Hashem is revealing a more intimate side of Him. And that's why since it's so intense and so powerful, it has to come down in the disguise. It's like a blessing in the skies. And it comes down in a very vague, fuzzy way, in an unclear way, and to us it appears as pain and suffering. But since you feel, you sense Hashem's intimacy, that makes you feel, that gives you joy. You feel Hashem's closeness. You feel you're so close to Hashem. You're closer to Hashem in tragedy than you are in goodness. When something good happens, obviously good, therefore you feel good about that closeness. Not that it doesn't bother you, the pain doesn't bother you, but you, you rejoice in the intimacy, in the closeness that you feel to Hashem, that you got much closer to Hashem, that Hashem trusts you enough, Hashem cares about you enough and trusts you enough to speak to you in this higher level and to relate to you in a much higher level and a much deeper level. And therefore, He's speaking to you in a different language. Not a language you expect, not a language that you're used to. And it's very hard to decipher the language, but you realize that Hashem is speaking to you. And Hashem trusts you, and you feel that intimacy, and you feel that caring, and you feel that closeness, and that warmth. And you rejoice in it. So if you rejoice in Hashem, that means that Hashem is more primary to you than anything external. So the reward will be measure for measure, will be commensurate. That Mashiach will come, you will bask in the glory when Hashem's name, the revelation of godliness, will emerge and surface and, and be, become evident. And you'll be conscious of it, you will rejoice. You will, that will be your reward. Because just like in this, during the exile, during the time before Mashiach comes, when godliness is hidden and concealed, you didn't take things at face value, you look deeper, and you realize the hidden depth, the hidden good. So too, when that will come, emerge out of hiding, you will also appreciate it. Because you define yourself by spirituality. So a world which, where godliness becomes self-evident, you will luxuriate in that world. You will thrive in that world. You will flourish in that world. It will make you the happiest person. But a person whose whole identity was material, his whole identity, he has an external, superficial identity. His whole identity is ego. What he has in his bank account and how many cars he has and just what he possesses and what he carries, that's his whole identity. He identifies himself by his externals, through, through material things. In a world which is, becomes essentially godly, the person will be lost. Such a person will not appreciate it. Where, where are my toys? Where are my... Suddenly it will be completely devalued. Everything that he invested his life in, everything that he defined himself in this world, it could be on the tops of the Forbes 400. But Mashiach will come. And everyone's priority will be, we'll have our priorities straight. And godliness will become evident and self-tangible. He could be the biggest pauper in the world. So suddenly from king of the world, the most powerful, the mightiest, the wealthiest, the most celebrated, he'll discover he's absolute nothing. Meaningless. Absolutely no one even looks at him. He's nothing. He's the poorest of the poor, the biggest pauper. But the person who identified himself by spirituality and godliness in the world of Mashiach will discover that he's the richest. He will thrive. This is the greatest reward, being close to Hashem. That is the biggest riches. That's what you have internally. No one can take that away. 
So it's measure for measure, it's commensurate. Because he focused on the inner, even while he was suffering, even while living in a world that defines itself by externals and and materialism, he focused on the inner. So when Mashiach will come, the inner will become most prominent. That will be his greatest reward. That will be his biggest riches. Feel justly rewarded. Continue. Now, the nearness to God is infinitely greater and more sublime in the hidden world, for there the concealment of his power is lodged, and it is also written, the Most High abides in secrecy. Both these verses indicate that the hidden world contains a higher aspect of godliness than the revealed world. Since the hidden world is the source of seeming affliction, he who loves God rejoices in it, for it represents a greater nearness to God than revealed good, which derives from the revealed world. Therefore, he is found worthy of seeing, quote, the sun emerging in its might, end quote, in the world to come, when the sun will emerge from the sheath in which it is hidden in this world, and it will then be revealed. Pain and suffering refines a person. It helps you overcome arrogance, and it helps you discover your ability to love. It helps you to discover your soul, those parts of you that no one can take away. No pain and suffering, not, nothing, those parts of you that can never really be afflicted. No matter what is happening to you externally, you can be free vibrant and healthy, spiritually healthy, emotionally healthy, psychologically healthy. And it helps you develop and mature and ripen and it helps you crack through the shell and allow that inner core, that inner beauty to emerge and surface. So... which is why the you know the Jewish people have suffered so much more so than any other nation in the world no one went through their temples were not destroyed two exiles crushing exile pogroms holocaust while hatred is not uniquely Jewish unfortunately there's hatred throughout the world but anti-Semitism is in a sense, universal. And, you know, when you take pure gold and you put it through the fire, what happens? It's strengthened. It's refined. It's purged of any stains. And what comes out is pure, pure gold. So when there's a rich inner life that's buried, that's submerged, that's waiting to emerge, and as a result of that being squeezed, being crushed, the heart being broken, all that inner beauty emerges and surfaces. It's not about the pain and suffering. It's really, it's only someone who Hashem loves only someone who God truly loves and God really has faith and believes 
and trust. And Hashem wants to elevate to the ultimate good, to the greater good. That person is put through, is put through the squeezer. And eventually, the Torah says, eventually, when Mashiach will come, then we'll see the goodness. Now we don't see the goodness. Now all we experience is the hatred. We experience the, the, uh, the pain, the suffering, the negative. But when Mashiach will come, we'll see the goodness. The goodness will emerge. The goodness will become obvious. Let's just finish the last, uh, this means. This means that what is presently the hidden world will then be revealed and it will shine forth and glow in a great and intense revelation upon all who seek refuge in him in this world, taking shelter in his shadow, the shadow of wisdom, which is presently in a state of shade as opposed to revealed light and goodness, i.e., They find shelter and refuge even in that which presents an external appearance of shade and darkness, whereas the light and goodness contained in it is concealed. This is sufficient explanation for the understanding. In this world, God's goodness is a shadow. But in the future, this goodness will emerge, which really explains a the Jewish paradoxical approach to pain and suffering. On one hand, a Jew has faith. Whatever God does is good. God is good. And whatever he does is for our benefit. And even if we don't appreciate it, we don't understand it, because we're too limited, but we know that from a higher point of view, it's good. It's for a good purpose. And only something good will come out of it. It's for our good, for our benefit. And it's only because God loves us and he cares about us, and that's why... He's, you know, he's waking us up. He wants us to realize our full potential, and he wants us to. Sometimes, when a person is drunk, when a person is drunk in materialism, what do you? How do you wake up a person that's drunk? How do you sober up someone who's drunk? You got to give him a patch. You slap him in the face, and he sobers up. So sometimes we get so drunk in materialism, to our own self-destruction, to our own detriment, that sometimes God gives us a slap. But you know, it's the ultimate act of kindness because he loves us and he cares about us he's not just going to allow us to destroy ourselves because we're too precious and our lives are too precious just to wallow away and waste away and, and you know it's like it's like a wake up call get real life is real wake up life is too serious and life is too real to, to, to just waste away and then even in the suffering you feel Hashem's love and Hashem's caring and concern and he's there with us in the suffering and he's, he feels our pain and he's suffering with us and he is care and concerned to make sure that we can handle it and that God forbid he doesn't give us something that we can't handle. There's a famous story. It was a, a person who was traveling and he saw a commotion. It was a huge commotion in the middle of the streets. In the marketplace. This is what happened. A person fainted. This is what happened. The person collected a lot of money from his friends, and he came to the marketplace to buy wholesale, to bring back home, he'll be able to sell retail, he'll be able to pay everyone their debts. He borrowed a huge amount of money, and he lost his wallet. Comes to the marketplace, he realized he lost his wallet, he yelled out, and he fainted. 
And as hard as they tried to revive him, they couldn't revive him. Couldn't revive him. The moment they revived him, you heard he lost his wallet, he fainted, he fainted again. As hard as they tried. So this, this rabbi walks by and he says, tell him he didn't lose his wallet. Next time he wakes up, tell him he didn't lose his wallet. So you wake up, he says, oh, you didn't lose your wallet. Good news, we have your wallet. Oh, thank God. And within a few minutes, someone comes by. I found your wallet here with all the money intact. Turn to the rabbi. He says, Rabbi, what are you, a prophet? What are you, a divine inspiration? How did you know? The rabbi says, no, I don't have divine inspiration. It's very simple. God doesn't give a person a test they can't handle. When I saw that this person couldn't handle it, he simply couldn't handle it. <laughs> Every time he heard, he just collapsed. I said, this is not a test for him. can't handle it. And that's exactly what happened. He found this wallet. So when you realize how custom-made it is, how Hashem is with us, and Hashem, Hashem, there's a gentleness, and there's a, a shearing of intimacy. You feel an intimacy with Hashem that you can't ordinarily feel. Yet at the same time, there's a mitzvah in the Torah that a Jew has to pray to God. We pray to God that things should be better. If God forbid a person is suffering, there's an obligation. It's one of the 613 mitzvahs. There's an obligation to pray. Please heal me. And we don't say, wait, wait a minute. Isn't that a contradiction to faith? Here we just learn that faith means that we both trust, we have faith in Hashem, that everything that God does is for the good and, and it's for our good, and that He actually even comes from a much deeper place, and it's, it's an intimacy we're sharing with Hashem and a much deeper level than when things are overtly good. And here we're praying to God, please heal, please heal me. What do you mean heal me? Things are good. If we don't see the good, it means it's even a greater good. And you have to receive it with joy. And you have to bless God. So what do you mean heal me? And if there was any other way to achieve and to accomplish this good, without the pain and suffering, even without our prayer, does a child have to pray to a parent, parent, please feed me? The parent feels the pain of the hunger pains of the child more, more, more than the child. So if there was any other way of accomplishing, achieving what needs to be accomplished for the benefit of the child without undergoing the operation, even without our prayer, I think you have to pray. So what's the point of prayer? Obviously, there's no other way to accomplish this without this, this painful procedure. But if you were to realize the bigger picture, you would realize that it's all for the good. And this is the only way. So, what do you mean there's a mitzvah to pray? What do you mean, heal me? What do you mean, everything is wonderful? <laughs> you believe in God, you have faith in God. Whatever God does is for the good. You receive it with joy. You feel that intimacy. And you bless God. So why are we praying? You know, the Talmud tells a story. At Nachum, Ish Gamzum, he was called, his nickname was Nachum Ish, the man Gamzu. Because whatever happened in his life, he would say, Gam Zul This is good. He was a predecessor of Rabbi Akiva. He was older than Rabbi Akiva. And he was on a much higher level than Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva said, whatever God does is for the good. In other words, this itself is painful. And I experienced the pain. But I realized that the pain is leading to something good. The means, the end, justify the means. 
there's a bigger picture, and the means will lead to good, and as he personally experienced, the fact that he was stranded, and he was alone, and he was frightened, saved his life. So it was a temporary inconvenience, but for a greater good. Nachem Ishgamzu had a different approach. And he, his statement was in Hebrew, where things are clearer. In Hebrew language, everything is much clearer. Rabbi Kiva's statement was in Aramaic. Whatever God does, even if I don't understand it, and even if it's painful, I have faith that it's for the good. Rabbi Nachum was in a higher level. He says, in Hebrew, where things are clear, everything is clear. This is good. This itself is good. And the Talmud tells the story. Nachum Mishgamzu was sent to the Roman Emperor to represent the Jewish people. He was a righteous man. On the way to the Roman Emperor, he stopped at the inn. He stops at the inn. The innkeeper sees he's carrying this, this box. It was filled with rubies and diamonds and, and gold coins, a gift from the Jewish community of Israel to the Roman Emperor, to appease the Roman Emperor. So he asked, and Nachimish Gamzu innocently said, I'm representing the Jewish people, and I'm here with a gift to the king. Anyway, while he was asleep, <laughs> the, person, the innkeeper made himself busy, and he emptied out the box of all the gold and silver and, and, and rubies and diamonds and pearls and he filled it with sand from his backyard. Anyway, Nachamish Gamzu was a righteous man. He wakes up unsuspecting. He prays, finishes his prayers and continues his journey to Rome. Comes to the Roman emperor and he says, Do I have a gift for you from the Jewish people? Please accept on behalf of the Jewish people our present. They open up the box <laughs> What do they find? A box filled with sand. You can imagine uh, everyone's horror. What are you insulting me? Off, off with your head! And not only you. I'm going to re- take revenge on the Jewish people. How dare you insult me like this? And what was Nachem Ishgamz's response? He was checkmated. This was the end of his. This was the end of him. The end of the community. His response was his typical response. This is also for the best. Whatever God does is for the best. Do you think God would allow me to be in this position, this ridiculous position? Whatever God does is for the best. Miraculously, Elijah the prophet appeared as one of the ministers who happened to be absent that day. And Elijah said, the prominent advisor to the king, he says, wait a minute. Do you think the Jewish people, no one ever accused the Jewish people of being fools. Do you think they would send you a box of sand to insult you? Come on. You know what this sand is? This is the sand that they inherited from Abraham. Remember when Abraham fought against the four mighty kings? Single-handedly, him and his servant, maybe with the help of 318 people. How did he win the war? He won the war. He had miraculous sand. He threw the sand and it turned into spears to a weapon, and it destroyed the enemy. And the king then, the Roman king empire, was in war, major war with, with one of its neighbors. He says, let's hold Nachemish Gamzu, the holding cell, the cell. Let's send the sand to the front, and let's try it. That's exactly what they did. They sent the sand to the front, and it was miraculous sand, and it was a weapon, and it destroyed the enemy, and the Romans won the war. Wow. The king says, thank you. This is more precious to me than the gold and the silver and the, and the, the rubies and the diamonds and the pearls. This is, you, you helped me win the war. 
solidify my reign. So he sent back gifts to the Jewish people, thanking them, and everything the Jewish people wanted to accomplish with the Roman Emperor, they accomplished, gave them whatever they wanted, and he sent them back with a beautiful gift. On the way back, he stops at the same inn. The person was shocked that he's still alive. He says, what happened? He says, you won't believe what happened? It was, an, oh, it was unbelievable. Hashem came through. Hashem, everything is for the good. This box of sand, it, it was miraculous. And the king was so thrilled. So the thing, he thinks to himself, this box of sand. I know where the sand came from. <laughs> I dug it. I put it in there. It's from my backyard. I didn't know my sand was so miraculous. So he digs it box of sand. <laughs> and he goes to the Roman emperor and he says, do I have sand for you? I have enough sand. You can win all the wars you're fighting. And the king says, okay, let's try it. Of course, nothing happened. They beheaded him and, that, and he got his just reward, that thief. But Nachem Gamzu, his approach to life was, everything God does is, is good. Not only it is a hidden good, it's obviously good. And in his situation, that's exactly what happened. Every situation, the negative itself, turned into a positive. So this is, it seems to be a contradiction, a paradox. Here we say Jewish faith is that everything that God does is for the good and that we have to go deep down inside and we have to go on a deeper level and realize that the, it's a hidden good when something negative happens or a tragedy happens. It's really a blessing in disguise and it comes from a deep, intimate place within God, from God's, the first two letters of God's name, Yutke. And Hashem is touching us in a very deep place. And, and the fact that we feel so close to God gives us a joy, a certain sense of inner joy. We don't go around dancing. When tragedy happens, you don't dance. But there's an inner joy. There's a feeling of intimacy with God and a feeling of closeness. And, and you bless God for that, um, for that intimacy and for that closeness. And in the future, the good will emerge. In the future, all that goodness will emerge. But that's in the future. So why is it that we have a mitzvah today to pray for God? Please heal me. Not in the future. To heal me now. Please give me a livelihood. I need, I need, I need money. Yesterday. I paid my bills yesterday. So it makes no sense. Either we have faith or we have trust. What is trust in God? Trust in God is I trust. Like it says in the dollar bill, in God we trust. Like a trust fund. You trust your whole life savings. You totally, completely trust God that things will be good. Tangibly good. Not only that it is good, because in a hidden way, everything God does is good. Even if we don't understand it, even if it's a mystery to us. But we have faith that everything is good. We have trust that things will be good. As the Talmud says, even if a sword is on your throat, the tip of the sword is already on your throat. You have another split second left to live. You shouldn't lose trust. Hope in Hashem. But things will turn out right. The last moment. As long as you're breathing, as long as you're alive, you have complete trust in Hashem that everything will be. So it seems like a contradiction, a paradox. Either we have faith or we have trust. How can you have both together? What do you mean things will be good? Things are already good. Everything is wonderful. And yet we have trust that things will tangibly. And the answer is, Because everything is by divine providence. The fact that God created us human, and on a human level, pain and suffering is pain and suffering. There's a lesson in that too. God wants us to scream. 
wants us to yell. He wants us to storm heaven and earth. He wants us to pray. He wants us to avert the terrible decree. He wants us to change. He wants everything to be tangibly good. Because when God created the world, this world was a garden of Eden. Everything was tangibly good. In a perfect world, when Mashiach will come, in a perfect world, everything will be tangibly good. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any pain and suffering. There will no longer be any evil. Everything will be tangibly good. So when there is pain and suffering, there's something very wrong with this picture. And therefore we can never really make peace with pain and suffering. Just like we can't make peace with death. We can't make peace with evil. Because there's something very wrong with this picture. The picture is crooked, it's distorted. When you see a crooked picture and it bothers you, there's no way in the world you're going to make the picture even more crooked. Because it bothers you because you have a sense of the way things should be. Well, it's hardwired within us. Every Jew has a sense. It's hardwired within us. We have a sense of a perfect world, of the way things should be. A whole world, where things are absolutely good. There's absolute life, absolute good. Absolute joy. No shadows, all light, no shadows. And therefore, it troubles us, it bothers us, when we see that there's shade, and there's darkness. And there's evil, and there's pain, and there's death. It's all a symptom of something, something not right, something not being in place. Something is not right. The, everything is off. And therefore, everything is distorted. And therefore, we can't make peace with it. In a world where everything comes into focus, when godliness comes into focus, when the godly spark within us comes into focus, when the godly spark within every human being comes into focus, when we act in a way that's consistent with our godly nature, when every human being will act in a way that's consistent with our godly nature, there will no longer be any pain, there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any, any evil. The world will, everything will fall into place. So a Jew can never make peace with pain and suffering. We don't justify pain and suffering, we don't surrender to pain and suffering. Judaism is not about surrender. And therefore we have a mitzvah to pray we have a mitzvah to avert the terrible decree, to fight, to storm heaven, to do everything in our power. And that's why, at the same time that we have faith in God, that everything that God does is good, and everything that happens in this world comes directly from God, and God isn't totally in charge and control of this world. Everything, we don't lift a pinky without God. Everything is Hashem. And therefore we bless Hashem for everything, and therefore we're, we, we, are, we rejoice with everything. Because we know everything comes from Hashem and we feel the intimacy with Hashem but at the same time we cannot make peace with pain and suffering and we pray to Hashem that everything should be tangibly good and we have complete trust in Hashem that everything will be tangibly good and when you have that trust in Hashem then things, things turn out right reminds me of the story it was uh, during the Holocaust in the concentration camp, there were a group of rabbis who decided to call, to convene a court case. Who is the defendant? God Almighty Himself. They were calling God to a court case. Okay. A few rabbis gathered together and they summoned God. God is everywhere. So there was no problem in summoning God to the court. They said, God practices what He preaches. He has to live by the same Torah that he expects us to live by. 
But based on the Torah, what right does he have to turn a half a million babies into soap? Based on what? There's no sin in the world that can justify what happened in the Holocaust. And they're going on and on. And finally, one of the rabbis gets up and he turns to his colleagues and says, He says, It's getting late. It's time to daven mincha. Time to pray our afternoon prayers. And there's no contradiction. On the contrary. If you have no faith, what do you mean? Argue arguments against God. Who are you arguing against? There was a, a fellow called Hitler, a madman called Hitler. He hated Jews. And he, he decided to kill Jews. I mean, who, who, who are you arguing against? Who are you complaining against? There's no one to complain to. There's no one to argue with. The arguments and the complaints come from faith. It's because we have faith. Because we know that nothing happens in this world without Hashem's permission. So it's not that one day Hitler decided he couldn't do a thing. He can't lift a pinky to hurt another person. Unless it was decreed in heaven. A person, you don't have the freedom of choice to harm another person. You don't have the freedom of choice to lay a pinky in another person. And if the other person is harmed or inconvenienced, it's because it was decreed in heaven. So it's because you know and you have faith that everything comes from Hashem. That you cry out to Hashem. Why the pain? Why the suffering? And it's for that same reason that you complain to Hashem and you say and you pray. What is prayer all about? How can you pray? What's the point of prayer? If there was any other way to accomplish this without the painful way, even without our prayer, before we even open our mouth to pray, God would have done it in a positive way. If there's a way to save this person without operating on him, if there's a way to save his leg without amputating, you have to pray, don't amputate. Obviously, Hashem would not amputate. So obviously there was no other way. So what's the meaning of prayer? What are you praying for? It's impossible. There's no other way to do this. And the answer is, in prayer, a Jew is asking Hashem to do the impossible. God could do the impossible. We are asking Hashem to do the impossible. Yes, we know it's impossible. There is no other way to accomplish the greater good without doing this Inconvenience without undergoing this painful, this painful experience. There's no other way to get to the bread unless you go through this whole process. Crushing and burning, etc. But we turn to Hashem and we say, you have, you're undefined. There are no limits. You can do whatever you want. You created the world. You're not straitjacketed by the universe. You created the universe with all the rules and laws in the universe. So yes, by every single rule and law in the universe, this is impossible. So, what's God for if not to do the impossible? That's why we're praying to God. We don't pray to angels. We don't pray to anyone else. Only to God. Because only God can do the impossible. And when a Jew trusts Hashem, and when you pray to Hashem, you're connecting with the essence of God. When you're connecting with the essence of God, all bets are off. The impossible could happen. And we turn to Hashem and say, whatever you wanted to accomplish through the Holocaust. Why didn't you accomplish it in the positive? How? It's impossible? Okay, so you're God. Figure it out. If something spectacularly good will happen to you, maybe you'll accomplish the same thing. We don't understand. We don't begin to understand. We don't begin to fathom what's going on. It's so much deeper, so much beyond our understanding. But because we have faith in God, and because we know it comes from God, we turn to Hashem and say, listen Hashem, you can do the impossible. 
So it's not enough that the end is good. We also want the means to the end to be good. It should, the means should be pleasant, tangibly good, in ways that we human beings, finite, limited human beings, the children that we are, we should understand that it's good. We should see that it's good. It should be tangibly good. And we know that's the power of prayer. When you truly pray, and you mean it, and you truly trust in Hashem, genuine trust in Hashem, as the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe once said, he says, you want to know what trust is? Even if you know you're expecting a huge check, expecting a lot of money, you can't compare the knowledge of it to the tangible when you're actually holding it in your hand. When someone delivers the money to you and you're holding it in your hand, the certainty and the joy that you have by holding it in your hand, even though you know, you know it's coming, it's not the same. When you feel it and you hold it and it's in your pocket, now the joy is complete. You want to know what trust is? Trust is that when your pockets are empty, you have such trust in Hashem that the money will be there. That when the money comes, actually comes, it's in your pocket, it doesn't add one iota to to your feeling of certainty and joy. You were so certain and you were so joyful before the money came that when the money came, it makes no difference. Yeah, of course, I had it already. It's in my pocket. It doesn't add it. If you really have such a level of trust, the money will be there. This is for real. This is, not the, this is not the game. If you really have such a level of trust in Hashem, such a level of confidence and trust in Hashem, in Hashem's goodness, and Hashem can do anything, and you pray with such sincerity and such fervor, then miracles will happen. The impossible will happen. And the money will be there. It's like the beautiful story of the Baal Shem Tov. We'll conclude with the story. The Baal Shem Tov used to take his students to learn from the simple Jews, to learn lessons from the simple Jews. And he once wanted to show them what trust in Hashem, what true trust in Hashem is all about. So he takes his students, these were the leading rabbis, mystics, and scholars of Eastern Europe, the most brilliant minds of Eastern Europe. And he takes them to an inn, anyway. The innkeeper was excited, such illustrious guests, the Baal Shem Tev and the students. He prepares breakfast for them. In the middle of breakfast, the, uh, a policeman walks in and knocks on the table three times. He said, what's this? He says, well, I owe my rent. And this is second to the last warning that I have to pay my rent today. And if I don't pay my rent today, he says, what happens if you don't pay your rent? This, was, this wasn't rent control apartments in New York. This was uh, in the olden days in Eastern Europe. If you didn't pay your rent, you went to debtor's prison, which was a dungeon. And you were lucky if you ever came out alive. He says, well, if I don't pay my rent, myself, my family, will all end up in, in the dungeon. So students say, you know what? Go pay your rent. We'll wait. And then we'll continue eating breakfast. He says, no, 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 no. Let's eat. Don't worry. No, no, he says, the student says, insisted, you go pay the rent away. He says, no. He says, why, why don't you go pay the rent first? He says, the truth is, I'll tell you the truth, I don't have it. So they lost their appetite. He's about to be thrown into the dungeon. And here, the only relaxed one around the table was this true, this innkeeper. He was totally relaxed. Anyway, an hour later, the policeman comes back, knocks on the table, bangs on the table three times, and he leaves. So he tells the students, well, this is the last warning. So now I have to go. 
So he goes to the closet, takes his coat, and he starts leaving. Students say, where are you going? He says, what do you mean where I'm going? I'm going to pay the rent. He says, what do you mean pay the rent? You just told us you don't have it. He says, uh, that's true, I don't have it. But Hashem will help. God will help. And he goes, very calm, very relaxed. And he goes out the door. The students run to the window and to the porch, and they want to see what's going to happen. And they see as he's walking down the road, someone pulls up in the carriage, pulls up, and starts talking to him. And uh, they're having this animated conversation, and then the carriage starts pulling away. And the Jew continues to walk, and then suddenly they see the carriage turn back around, goes, goes up to the Jew, and the person sitting in the carriage speaks to him again and gives him something, and the Jew continues to walk, and the carriage walks towards the end. And the carriage drives towards the end. Anyway, the students are very curious to see what happened. So he comes to the inn and he tells them, you know, I decided this morning that I want to do business with a Jew. You know, he's an innkeeper. I want to sell him whiskey, beer, you know, for all the people are traveling. And uh, I really like him. He's honest. He's a good person. I want to become a partner with him. I'll provide him the material and he'll, he'll sell it. And we'll be partners. But the Jew, the Jew was asking for a little too much money. He wanted a little too much for the partnership. The Jew says, listen, take it or leave it. The, the, the amount the Jew asked was the rent that he owed. So I said, listen, I love the Jew, but it's a little too much money. It wasn't what I had in mind. So I left. But then I thought to myself, I really like him. He's honest. You know, it's worth it. Better do business with someone who's honest than I trust, who's a good person, you know, than doing business. So I decided I'll bite the bullets. I turned back. I gave him the money. He says, oh, good, go to the inn. I'll be back. I have to go pay, pay my rent. And then, uh... and the students were astounded. They saw a live demonstration of what true trust in Hashem is. They envied the simple Jew. Halavai, they were able to have this simple trust. And this was genuine trust. He was genuinely relaxed. It wasn't an act. The Torah says I should be relaxed. I'm going to be relaxed. He was relaxed. He was relaxed. Calm. Not a care. No concern. Hashem is going to help. There's no question. How? What? When? Where? I'm checkmated. It's the last second. I have no idea. But, you know, so. Even the sword, the sword is on his throat. You complete trust. And if you have that level of trust, the money will always be there. There's no question. But you have to earn it. How do you earn it? By achieving that level of trust. If you don't have that level of trust, then, then you operate in the normal frame of reference. The normal frame of reference of the universe, there are rules, there are laws... There's the possible and there's the impossible. The impossible, you can't do the impossible. So then you have to go by the possible. And then, in order to achieve the greater good, the only way to do it is through, by undergoing this painful, painful moment. And it's all for our good. And that's our faith that we have that everything that already happened to us in the past, something that already happened to us, we accept it with faith. We bless Hashem. Baruch, we bless Hashem. We accept His judgment. And in a certain sense, we even experience His intimacy and His love for us. And, his close, and we feel very close to Hashem in that moment. And therefore, it gives us a certain joy, not because of the painful event. The joy is the closeness that we feel with Hashem. That gives us joy. Inner joy. It's not a joy that we're dancing, but it's an inner joy. We feel close to Hashem. But if you have trust in Hashem, all bets are on. Then you touch the essence of God. When you touch the essence of God, there are no rules, there are no laws, because God created the rules in the first place. All of the rules in the universe. And if God has to recreate the whole universe, just so 
that this good thing should happen? Change all the rules of God to do the impossible? What's God for if not do the impossible? This is trust. So this is the paradox that on one hand, a Jew never makes peace with pain and suffering. On one hand, we have faith, complete faith in Hashem that everything that happens in this world comes directly from God. 100%. And we have faith. And we bless Hashem. And we feel intimate with Hashem. Very deep down inside, a certain sense of joy that's hard to describe and hard to explain. But on the other hand, God forbid to make peace with pain and suffering. And God forbid to make peace with your fellow's pain and suffering. It's only with your own pain and suffering that you have to bless Hashem and you have to feel a certain sense of joy. But another person suffering? God forbid to make peace with another person suffering. When another person suffers, you have to help them. You have to empathize with them. Don't sit and teach them about faith and teach them everything is wonderful and it's good and you're blessed and you're, you're chosen and it's wonderful. No. You have to empathize with them. You have to do everything in your power to alleviate their pain, to help them and to cry with them and to feel their pain. And to feel the tragedy. Not to justify it, God forbid. It's only in relation to your own pain and suffering that we bless Hashem and we accept it with a certain sense of inner joy. But even with ourselves, at the same time, we can't make peace with pain and suffering. We pray to Hashem and we have trust in Hashem that not only in the future will things be good, but like Nochem Mishgamzu, now, things should be good now. Here and now, this moment, the negative itself should turn into positive. And should be tangibly good. Next week we'll address your second question.